If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Esther chapter 7? If you've been with us this summer at all, uh, several weeks we've, we've spent our time in the book of Esther. And we are going to pick up our study again. So I'm going to ask Nick Taylor to come. He's going to read uh, Esther chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 for us this morning. Esther 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance in the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Thank you so much, Nick. Esther is a story of reversal, unexpected, dramatic reversal. For a little review, because it may have been a few weeks since we've looked at this, it's helpful to remember maybe the the main characters. So one of the main characters in the book is the king, but but he doesn't play nearly as significant as some others in the in the book. So we we read about. Haman, who has at this point become prime minister of Persia. And then there are other, two other main characters of the book. They're, they're relatives. So their names are Esther and Mordecai. Esther's the queen, and Mordecai is some relative, maybe a cousin or an uncle. It's a story of reversal. At one point, Haman seems to be on the rise. If Haman had stock, we would say, buy his stock. It seems like he's going places. He gets appointed to be the, the prime minister. He, he has the ear of the king, and that's very important in the book of Esther. It seems like whoever tells the king to do something, the king just seems to go along with their idea. So Haman has that, has that important role, and he even gets this decree kind of... He doesn't tell the king all the details of it, but he gets this decree passed against uh, some people he particularly hates, the Jews. 
And, and it's a decree of genocide. They should be wiped out in the whole Persian Empire. He's becoming powerful. He hates Mordecai. And at one point in the book, it seems like he is going to settle this personal vendetta he has. It just seems to be escalating in the book of Esther. It seems like he's going to take care of Mordecai. He's going to hang him, be done with him once for all. It seems like Haman is going places. And so at one point you're asking, like, where is God? Is God nowhere? His name's not mentioned in this book. Or is he present? Is he now here, working behind the scenes, working out his will? At this very tense moment, Esther's confronted by Mordecai. Mordecai says, you're the queen. You've got to do something. You have to act for the good of your people so that this decree of genocide will be stopped. And it's a turning point. It actually becomes Esther who is on the rise at this point. Even Mordecai gets recognized for a past good deed of loyalty to the king. So he's on the rise. And and the, the chapter we read a couple weeks ago when we met, In Esther chapter 6, it seems like things are unraveling for Haman. He is not on the rise anymore. It's a great reversal. And that's where we pick up in chapter 7. So Nick read it for us. It's a pretty straightforward chapter. The previous parts of this story, the previous chapters, kind of they're weaving this complicated plot. But in chapter 7, it all gets very simple. It all gets very clear. It's not hard to figure out what's going on. And I want us to take a moment and focus on some of these characters. I I think in in chapter 7 you see Esther. And if if, if I gave a word to Esther, I'd say, she's shrewd. And if I looked at the king, I'd have to say, I think he's still clueless. And if I thought about Haman, I'd say, he's he's finished. Esther is shrewd. Why do I say that? Well, Esther's been asked two times previously from the king... The king who can do whatever he wants to in the empire. She's been asked, what do you want? The king will give you whatever you want. If, do you want half the kingdom? King's feeling generous. You got it. What do you, what do you want, Esther? He's asked her this twice. And now Esther has waited three times. And so in verse 2, he asks again, what do you want, Queen Esther? Well, Esther's going to get whatever she asked for at this point. If the king's asked three times, how shrewd to make sure she is going to get what she wants. Notice how she talks to the king. Do you you still have your Bibles open there in Esther chapter 7 and verse 3? She shows this deference and it's not just niceties in the court of the king. I think it's shrewd. She says, if I found favor in your sight, well, she knows she has. If it pleased the king, I do have a request. And the suspense is building. What is this big request she's going to... She says, this this is actually my request. I just want to live. I'd like to live. Oh, my relatives, I'd like them to live too. You want to know what my request is? I'd like to live. And and again, she's shrewd because the next thing out of her mouth in in verse 4 is, you know, I I really wouldn't bother you about this if if we were just being sold into slavery. Because I know the king has a lot of important things. I would hesitate to even mention it to you, king, if it weren't for my life being at stake. But I thought you'd like to know your queen is going to get executed. 
She's shrewd in how this goes down. She singles out Haman in a methodical fashion, points all attention to him in such a powerful way. Esther is shrewd, make no mistake. But the king is portrayed as really, in some ways, clueless. Why do I say that? It's because the king has been played all, this whole time. I mean, he's been played by Haman. Haman just says, hey, I've got a decree. You don't need to worry about it. I'll take care of you. I'll make sure things get run well in your empire. But I do need you to sign this and I'll take care of it. We've got a problem with some people. I'll take care of it. King, okay. And he signs it. Doesn't seem like he even, even asks questions. The king is even put in a place here where Esther it's kind of forced his hand a little bit. I mean, when you read verse 5, all he's got is, is some questions. I mean, king, the king seems irate, and he's like, who and where? And who has the nerve to do this to the king? I mean, that's all he's got. I don't think he realizes, actually, and, and Esther has to be shrewd, because actually, the king's the one that signed it, that signed the whole decree. This would not have happened had he not given permission. So again, she is pushing him toward a certain conclusion as well. Haman, I mentioned a minute ago, he's finished. Esther identifies him in verse 6 as a foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman, we know his response, it says, he's terrified. In verse 8, it describes the scene, and and I don't know all of the action. I mean, it's not a lot of words here. They don't have a clear picture of all of what's going on. It seems like what happens in that moment. So Haman's been singled out. It seems like the king is irate, and he just leaves the room. It seems like he storms off. I don't know. Maybe he's to collect himself. Like, what do I do? Is it between my prime minister and my queen? Someone's going to ha- I mean, I don't know what, what is going on all in his head at that moment, but he leaves. And at that moment, Haman has to think, okay, it matters that you have the ear of the king, so who has that? Maybe Esther can help. That's his, own, that's his only chance. I mean, he could follow the king. That doesn't seem like a good option. He could try to run away. That doesn't seem like a good option. He's going to beg for his life. Esther, help me out. Help me out. So however he physically approached Esther, it seems like they were reclining at table at that, at that moment. The king walks in at that very moment. And the king interprets that as some sort of an an assault. The wording even allows for it to be some sort of sexual assault. And so immediately, immediately, Haman's life is over. It says the words just come out of the mouth of the king. They put a a cover over Haman's head indicating he is fully disgraced. He is no longer fit to live. Ironically, the The king is played once more. Just interesting the way it all goes down right there at the end. Did you see it where in verse 9, then Harbona, just he happens to be right in the middle of it. And he says, "I, I don't know if this is important right now, but I noticed some gallows. Or some say it's maybe a big stake in which you get impaled. Pick your execution of choice. I happened to notice it as I was talking. Funny thing, it was in Haman's yard. I don't know if it could serve any purpose right now, king. And again, the king, well, let's hang him on that then. And the story ends. Something cold and surgical. The wrath of the king dies down. What we know, what I think you're meant to feel as you come to the end of chapter 7, is that justice has been served. Justice has come. 
Haman has gotten what is coming to him. Legal justice. I mean, the king can do what he wants. He, he's going to write the law. Haman's done. But even just like the justice of the universe has been done. This Haman who's been such an evil character, he's taken care of. I don't know if you recognize how much justice is a prominent theme in Scripture. I, I could share many verses. I will share a few. So in Psalm chapter 7, and this is even, even uh, written in poetry, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. It's a picture of justice, isn't it? This is Haman. This is a perfect description of Haman. This is exactly what happened to him. He aimed for violence, and violence was returned on him. One of Job's friends in Job chapter 4 and verse 8 says, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble always reap the same. Proverbs chapter 5, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. This wicked man dies for a lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, I mean, Haman was a foolish man. He is led astray. Or maybe more pointed, Psalm 37. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. Because God sees, the Lord sees that his day is coming. I don't know what's going on in your mind when you read through Esther 7, but... I think likely, as you read this story, the reaction you have is, okay, justice has been done. I think that's the reaction the author wants you to have. You're satisfied with the outcome. I remember talking to my wife about watching a movie one time, and she said, I I hate that movie, because it doesn't end right. Like, what what do you mean it doesn't end right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's these movies that kind of leave you unresolved, like the the good guy didn't get promoted. The bad guy didn't get what was coming to him. It's just like, it didn't end right. I wanted it to go the other way. When I come to Esther 7, no, that one ended exactly as it should have. No one's cheering for Haman. Yeah, I don't read this and have any idea like, boy, he's just the underdog who was railroaded by a bad system. Like, I give him a break. He meant well. No one's saying that. No one thinks that. No one in this room thinks that. So we think about it. We're, yeah, I, I was reminded sometimes when uh, an athlete is, you know, really famous and you can go to the sports store and get their jerseys and then all of a sudden they do something stupid. And then all of a sudden, like, the team trades them or suspend, suspends them or kicks them off the team. What happens to those jerseys then? Kind of weird. Like, nobody wants to wear that jersey at that moment. Pretty cheap, pretty worthless. Yeah, that, that's Haman. Nobody's buying his jersey. No one's buying his stock at that moment. It's all gone down. If I ask you what sort of labels would you give Haman, that might summarize where he is, what he has been, like his character, what would be his identity in this story? It's not hard for our moral sensibilities to just start putting them up pretty quickly. Here's some that, that I thought of. I mean, the first two are supplied by Esther. He's wicked. Esther called him out as an enemy, a foe. 
We'd say he has a, an evil heart. I mean, who can, who concocts a plan for genocide? I mean, this is evil. He's guilty. He's stubborn. He has to have his own way. He's proud. He's got to have everybody like saying how great he is. And even when one person in the empire doesn't, it's like stop everything. He's so foolish. In Esther 6 and 7, he becomes the outcast, the one actually out of favor of the king. He deserves wrath. And probably most graphically, at the end of Esther 7, Haman's dead. He's done. Haman deserves these things and more. We will not give him a pass this morning. The reversal is what it should be. There's no nice things to say. Okay, so my, my goal this morning is not just to analyze an ancient figure in the Persian Empire. I think God's word is given to us. As a matter of fact, I know God's word is given to us to hold up as a mirror for our own lives. Not that we just look at Haman, but that we also look at ourselves. And, and we ask, God, like, well, what about our labels? What would best identify us? What's our image of ourselves? I, I think for most of us, we pretend it's all good. What I, what I most like to do is kind of craft my, my profile, if you will. I'm, I'm always interested in showing everybody else my highlight reel, not the mistakes I've made. I'm glad to use, if you will, like the flattering filters that just make me look better than I, I know I am. I like to pick my best moments. I like to give myself the benefit of the doubt for motives and intentions. In the stories that I tell, at least in my mind, or maybe even, maybe even as I tell them to others, often I find myself like I'm the hero of that story. If it hadn't been for me saying the right thing, if it hadn't been for me coming in at the right moment, if it wasn't for my wisdom, everybody else would have been in a mess. Or, or, or I tried to tell them, but they wouldn't listen. I've been the one that really has tried to hang in there, but people just don't understand. They don't really appreciate me. How easy it is to be, begin to create this identity of ourselves. But we come back to Haman. I do want to ask uh, you to take an honest assessment. Are there any of Haman's labels that we wear, that you wear? What labels, and, and this may be the best way to ask the question, what labels identify us correctly before God? What labels identify you correctly before God? What I find in Scripture is that uh, apart from God and the work of Jesus, the very same labels that apply to Haman apply to, to me. This list isn't like the flattering picture of Curtis that I would rather everybody know. But actually, this is, this is what Scripture tells of us. I, I want us to look at the list for a moment because actually Scripture will tell you this is who you are. But we live in a world, we live in a culture that just can't even handle it. You almost have to be a grown-up to recognize who you are as God sees you. And God sees everything. You don't get out of Romans 1 without knowing that apart from God, I would be foolish 
These are Paul's words, not mine. I would be foolish and heartless, haughty, filled with evil, boastful. I would be a sinner deserving of wrath. Does that sound familiar? Anything like this list? Ephesians 2 says we are dead and we are disobedient. Ephesians 3 says we are alienated. We have no hope. We are without God. We are far off. Does that sound anything like this list? Apart from God, that is our, that's a part of our autobiography. Colossians 1 says we live in the domain of darkness before Christ. We were dead. Titus 3 says we are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, full of envy. 1 Corinthians 6 says we are sexually immoral. We're greedy. We're drunkards. Please don't get me wrong. The Bible does not picture every human being as some sort of moral monster doing every bad thing they could all the time. But the Bible tells the truth about our hearts. It's more truthful than I want to be. The Bible tells the truth about my materialism when I want to say, I just like nice stuff. The Bible tells the truth about my selfishness when I have to manipulate and control everything in my path or I'm just a pain to live with. The Bible says something about my pride. When I may not verbalize that I'm the hero of every story, but in my mind I think it. The Bible, tell, the Bible shoots straight about your bondage and your addictions, the secret sin that's never come to the attention of anybody else. The Bible speaks clearly of our uncontrolled anger, what happens when the doors are shut. And nobody else hears, and we can speak as freely as we want to speak. God sees the secret sin that is like eating us up on the inside, the bitterness, the self-righteous hypocrisy, the moments where like here we are, we're singing about, about God and how he's a mighty refuge and a mighty fortress and We can barely contain a yawn because God hasn't done much for us in a long, long time. God sees that. God knows that. What labels do you understand that you wear? God sees and God knows everything. And apart from Jesus, this is us. I really don't say this to beat us down. For some of you, you may be so proud you actually need to hear the truth, just raw strength to deal with your pride. But for others, you may be saying, Curtis, I know I'm guilty. I feel like I'm an enemy of God. I don't feel like I'm in favor with him. I feel regularly like an outcast. I bear shame. Curtis, I I live with that every day of my life. I'm ashamed of who I am. I'm ashamed of what I've become. I'm ashamed of how many people I've disappointed. But I'll tell you, if you never see yourself or you rarely see yourself as a sinner and you never come to terms with that, I don't know how you taste grace. I don't think you've got a taste bud for grace unless you know that you are a sinner. You're not living in reality. And what I'd like to do with all those labels we saw, I'd love to take like the magic eraser and just cover them all up and and pretend they didn't happen. Nobody saw them. But that isn't the way the world works. That isn't reality. We sang about reality. What we sang about was about this great reversal. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Can for sin atone. Nothing good that I have done. This is all my hope. This is all my righteousness. Oh, precious is the flow. And only this could make me white as snow. I don't know of any other fountain. No other fountain I know. It's only the blood of Jesus. You see, the reversal comes in deliverance. And Esther and Mordecai are, they're, they're deliverers. They, they lead deliverance of God's people. But, but they're only like a diminished portion of a greater deliverer in Jesus. Because, see, Esther and Mordecai, they deliver through justice only. But Jesus delivers. The great reversal he brings is not just through justice. It is through justice, but it's also through mercy. Justice is the fact that the wages of sin are death and that apart from Christ, we spend eternity in the lake of fire, just as Revelation 20 describes. But God is abundant in mercy and steadfast love. He shows mercy to thousands of generations. And so the labels that I would have worn, actually, Christ takes those. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, for our sake, God made Jesus to carry all those labels we just read, to be sin for us. The one who, he didn't know any of those, who knew no sin so that we might be made righteous. We might become the righteousness of God. You can reject this deliverance, but then just make no mistake, you stand with your own labels as an enemy when wicked and outcast and dead in your sin. Or you can believe by grace what God has given to you, and you actually get a new set of labels. So here's another question. What labels describe those of us who are in Christ? See, I'm not just bringing bad news about who we really are apart from Christ. There's good news that comes. What are those things that actually mark us? Those that are in Christ. We begin going through the list, and we started off saying we're an outcast. Actually, we're not that in Christ. We're loved by God. We said apart from Christ, we're an enemy, but now we're a child of God. Apart from Christ, we're, we're guilty, but now we've been justified. Apart from Christ, we'd be proud. Scripture tells us, but now we're poor in spirit. We'd be out of favor, but now we've been accepted. We were wicked, but God has made us righteous. We had an evil heart. But God's dealt with our heart. He's given us a new heart, a clean heart, or a renewed heart. We were stubborn, but now God has made us meek. We were foolish, but God has made us wise. We were deserving of wrath, but now we enjoy grace. We were dead, but God has made us alive. This is what God has done for you. So we're not playing religious games here. This is a major reversal of who you would have been apart from Christ and who you are now in Christ. This is what it means to be rescued. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to have Jesus. This is what it means to have a new power inside of you, the Holy Spirit, transforming you and reshaping your life so that you look more and more like Jesus. This is what it means to trade in that old story for a new story that actually ends with the glory of Jesus, the cause of Jesus, the message of Jesus. This is what it means to live your life in light of that new story. Saying, not my will, but yours be done. A pure, holy life of sacrifice out of, not out of guilt, trying to pay off some debt you'd never pay anyway, but out of gratitude. 
This is God's grace. For those of you who've trusted in Jesus, this is what you've experienced. I think there's a, a perfect symbol that Jesus gave us to understand that. He gave us a, a table to come to and something to participate in together to signify we're not enemies anymore. We're welcomed around the table. This is what Christians have observed. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. But we're gathered together and it, it's not just some formal religious ritual. We're, we're signifying something that we participate. We identify with Jesus. That death was for us. And by his life, we go free now. If you're trusting in Jesus to rescue you, you're welcome. You're welcome when the bread and the juice is passed. You're welcome to take it. If you have not yet identified with Jesus in that way by putting your faith and your trust in him, depending on him, I'd ask you to simply pass the tray by. But I'd ask you to do more than that. I would ask you to consider what it would mean to turn and trust in Jesus. What would you hold on to? Why would you hold on to anything that you bring to the table? Let that go and trust in Jesus. Tell someone about it. Talk to someone about it. Don't let anything stand between you and coming to faith in Jesus. As we enter into this time of communion, and as the deacons have gone to prepare to serve us, I want us to reflect on a couple questions, and they'll be left up for a little bit before we start singing. So it'll take a little bit of time to distribute the bread and juice. So maybe during that time, ask yourself, do I have an accurate picture of who I would be apart from the work of Jesus? And then ask yourself, am I fully appreciating my acceptance before God because of the cross and my new identity in Jesus? In a moment, we'll take the elements together, but let's, let's linger long on those questions, all right?